Welcome to the ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne Jondeber, president of the ASBMR, and I am proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the Society of Basic, Translational, and Clinical Scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and the bedside to the bench. This four-part series is hosted by Dr. Dolores Schoback, Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Throughout these episodes, we'll speak with pioneers in the PTH field. We'll explore basic PTH physiology, actions of PTHRP, PTH for osteoporosis treatment, and groundbreaking discoveries in hypoparathyroidism. The important actions of PTH are just one example of numerous discoveries that have been elucidated by ASBMR scientists, shaping fundamental understanding of bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal biology, and then harnessing this knowledge to improve human health. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in to future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the ASBMR podcast. I'm Dolores Schoback. I'm professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm an endocrinologist interested in bone disease and osteoporosis for a long, long time. I'm here to you know, introduce you to and meet with Ben Leader. Ben is professor of medicine at Harvard and uh, located at the Massachusetts General Hospital and has had a really productive uh, career uh, as an endocrinologist interested in bone disease and osteoporosis. So just to start things off, Ben, um, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you landed in, in the field of uh, PTH and anabolic therapies and all the different studies that you've done. Sure. So um, uh, I actually, when I was um, an endocrine fellow, we all spend the first year sort of running around and seeing all sort of very interesting endocrine problems. And then we have to choose sort of the, the research project that we're going to do and who we're going to work with. And a lot of us really get uh, very attracted to some of the more esoteric fields in endocrinology. I mean, you see a patient with acromegaly, you know, it really strikes you or someone with a, you know, congenital adrenal hyperplasia or something that's just sort of gets you back to why you were interested in endocrinology in the first place. But I was always very interested in sort of focusing on a disease that has a very large public health impact. And in endocrinology, probably the two that that come to mind immediately, or probably the one that comes to mind most immediately is diabetes. And then, and then for me, it was osteoporosis. And at that point, I really just looked around to see where I thought I would fit best in terms of mentors. And we're, I was lucky here at Mass General. It's a very big department and there are a lot of great mentors and there's a lot of great research going around, going on. So, you know, I met with them and I just tried it sort of went more by instinct than anything else. It wasn't as though I felt like boy osteoporosis research is much more interesting than, uh, you know, than diabetes research. But I, I knew I wanted to do clinical research and I just felt very comfortable with the group that was doing clinical research here. There was a long sort of tradition Bob Neer at that point, Bob Neer was the sort of senior clinical researcher. Joel Finkelstein was, was my direct mentor. And I just felt as though it was, you know, it was a really nice fit for me. And, it, and um, 
I guess just got lucky that, that it was. Yeah, so this is really interesting because instinct isn't what we kind of think about when we tell fellows, we say kind of, you know, assess the project and, and you know, what are you gaining from it? But it sounds like you use sort of a combination of uh, old-fashioned instinct and how things fit. Tell us, uh, tell us a little more about what that instinct told you or how you used it. So it's interesting. I, I didn't, I didn't come to it from, from the perspective that many do, which is I want to figure out the best way to navigate an academic clinical research career. Because when I started doing clinical research, I really didn't, wasn't convinced that I was going to do that in the long term. I, I really enjoy clinical medicine. And I thought there was at least a pretty good likelihood that that's where I was going to end up doing most of my time. I remember when I applied for my fellowship, actually, uh, I met with Gil Daniels is one of the senior thyroidologists and a, really a master clinician. And he asked me what I wanted to do as an inter interview. And I said, well, I probably want to do clinical medicine. And he said, all right, that's great. But just don't tell anyone else that because it's, you know, it's not kind of what we do here. So <laughs> I left, I kept that back in my mind. But I did tell Joel, thank you the time I go, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm really excited to do this, start this, these clinical projects. I don't know if, you know, I don't know what I'm going to want to do in two years when my fellowship ends. To, to his credit and to my relief, you know, that didn't bother him the way it might yeah, some other yeah. course who are about to invest a lot of time and resources into somebody. Uh, but I wanted to be sort of as upfront and honest as I could be. Like I said before, it was really more instinctual. This is a good fit for me. Osteoporosis is obviously extremely important. I'd seen a lot of metabolic bone disease during the clinical year in my fellowship, and I was interested in it. You know, I thought it was just a good place to start, and I would see where it would take me. Yeah. So you weren't sure. So what what changed, what, what made you sure, or what changed the path of kind of made you decide it was going to be a research career? Well, I mean, I guess I didn't know how much I would like it, and, um, and I really liked it a lot. And then I was very lucky to have success early on. And that's, I think, pretty unusual. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I truly believe it was just lucky. And this really has nothing to do with osteoporosis. So I apologize in advance. But we started, Joel is a big baseball fan. I, I'm a big sports fan generally. And, and right when my fellowship started, we had a, I had a nice project looking at the differential effects of testosterone and estrogen on bone metabolism. But we were having some difficulty getting it off the ground and funding and that kind of thing. But at the time, there was um, uh, Mark McGuire had just, they, they just discovered that he had been taking androstene dione. And as endocrinologists, you know, we looked at each other and said, what, what does taking androstene dione as a dietary supplement do? And uh, we didn't know. We looked it up and it turns out no one knew. So we very quickly designed a study to assess the hormonal effects of androstene dione. We got Major League Baseball to, to fund it. No kidding. We, I didn't know that. Really? Yeah. Um, actually was funded by both the uh, Players Association and Major League Baseball, co-funded it. Um, and, um, and we got it off the ground very quickly. This was back in the days when, you know, the IRB maybe was a little bit quicker than they are now. We got, we got it funded. We got it off the ground very quickly. We completed it very quickly. I got it published in JAMA very quickly. So I had all of this positive reinforcement, you know, very early on. And I remember, and, you know, being able to do a clinical study that gives you results quickly and then, you know, whatever the results were going to be, were going to be interesting because no one had done it before. And it turns out that they were, you know, having, getting to look at your data for the first time and then trying to interpret it, that 
you know, that was, that's just, I mean, you know, this it was just a lot of fun and they, yeah. well, I got to figure out a way to be able to keep doing this um, because I'm not going to get, I can't rely on luck forever. And uh, then sort of began my focus in the metabolic bone disease, but it started really with a project that had essentially very little to do with, uh, with that. Yeah, that's right. So you, so you went in a different direction, but it seems like taking advantage of, of an opportunity to ask a, a novel question, right? Um, kind of got you, sounds like it got you hooked um, yep. to look at data. So, so that, that's one direction, but then you, you moved into the PTH and the anabolic therapies and that's so many uh, really wonderful successes there. So I guess, tell us a little how, how did, how did you switch over? How did you pivot over to PTH and, and get interested in the anabolics? Yeah, so that's, Another sort of um, longer story, so I'll do it quickly. My, my initial interest um, was really in the effects, particularly of estradiol and male bone metabolism. And so I began those projects, and I actually made a conscious effort to stay away from anabolic therapy and PTH, because I felt like that's what our unit does, that's what Bob Near does, that's what Joel does, and I should probably do something else. And that was more of a you know, I received some advice that, you know, you want to be able to differentiate yourself as quickly as possible and kept that back in the back of my head. So I, so I but, so I started really in another direction, but then, you know, the unit here is so rich in really the basic science of parathyroid hormone and its effects and, and the clinical research, as I mentioned, that it, you can't help but sort of become excited about those projects. And you're thinking about that a lot. You're going to all the lab meetings and that's sort of the, the focus of it. And, and at a certain point, I felt like, you know, trying to differentiate myself was less important than really trying to figure out what a really important clinical question was. And that's been guiding me since because my practice is primarily seeing patients with osteoporosis and metabolic bone disease. You get confronted with a lot of questions often which you realize are unanswered. And that makes you want to go answer them if you can, if you feel like there's a way to do it. That really is what stimulated my interest, particularly in, in combination anabolic therapy. And that, that's when I went on that path. Started yeah. probably five years into my research career. Yeah. So, you know, it's what, and, and you've got a great environment that you're in the midst of. Um, and I think fascinating that you, um, you really got a lot of um, stimulation, I guess, and, and uh, energy from the basic science that was going around. Not everybody has that, right? And, but it is, it is smart to take advantage of it, right? I mean, that's, that's such an important component of the environment. You know, for people who are listening, um, how, as a clinical researcher, how do you find those valuable you know, inputs to kind of keep you thinking and keep you understanding mechanism or thinking about mechanism. How would you, how do you, how would you advise a young person interested in a field uh, in clinical research to, to go after the stimulation that comes from the science that's going on? Yeah, well, you're right. It's, it's, it's a lot, probably a lot easier if you're in an environment like the one I was in and am in than if you're not because it's sort of almost by osmosis, you're getting a lot of that kind of stimulation, just being around 
all of these great basic scientists, many of whom are also clinicians. So, so it's not as though they don't have the perspective of a clinician. In the absence of that, I think it's probably much more difficult. Um, and you really have to make a conscious effort to sort of read more of the basic literature, which is not easy to do if you don't have that background. That's right. Well, yeah. if they're not in your institution, maybe at other places, and to really take advantage of the large meetings like the ASBMR meeting when the best basic science is presented and translational research, to go to the sessions that you know you will, you know, that, that you're expected to go to and that you'll understand and that, you know, clinical trials, one, two, three, four, five, but to sort of look for opportunities to learn about how the basic science is affecting what could be your next clinical question. Um, I'm imagining that's difficult because I've been lucky because I've never been anywhere else. And, you know, the, so if you're surrounded by it, it's, it's easier. One of the things that I attribute our ability to continue to be productive is that our group has continued to collaborate and just interact on a daily basis, really, with, with all of the basic scientists that are here. And that's something that was all, that's always been encouraged in the unit. It's led to projects that I wouldn't, you know, have, wouldn't have been able to do, I think, in a lot of other places without looking for collaborations outside the, the institution, which, you know, while potentially very valuable, are often more difficult to, to sort of come up with and to then make happen. Other than saying it's probably much more difficult if, if you're not surrounded in that environment, I'm not, I'm not, you know, that it's really then becomes, I think much more has to be self-directed and you have to make that conscious effort. Yeah. I think that's actually really uh, an important reminder to clinical researchers that what's happening in the basic science of the field you're either in or moving in, you really want to keep your finger on that pulse if you possibly can. And I think I agree with you so much about, um, trying to get out of your comfort zone when you go to meetings like ASBMR. We want to go to the things that we enjoy so much, but it's also good to stretch and think about what the next big idea might be. And I guess that's one question, you know, I think people want to know sort of like, how do you, how do you move from one set of uh, experiments or studies to the next big idea? Or how do you, how do you assess things for the next big idea? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the studies that I've been involved with over the last 20 years now, I've, I've always tried to make sure that they have a focus on the getting back to the clinic. And so a lot of the ideas for studies that we've done have come directly from the clinic. And because of that, I think that all of the projects, they're less dependent on the results. So if you're, if you're trying to answer a question that has a lot of clinical relevance, whether the study ultimately shows a you know, is positive or negative the way we think about it, it doesn't matter so much because you're answering a question that clinicians need to answer. Um, and so, for example, study that we're doing right now that's sort of towards the end is looking at direct comparison between alendronate and raloxifene in patients who were previously treated with denosumab. Um, to determine um, whether or not raloxifene is sufficient at reducing the post-anosumab increase in bone resorption and bone loss. And that's a question that I became interested in directly because we see patients in the clinic in whom they're on denosumab and you want to stop it for whatever reason. And you can't start a bisphosphonate because they don't tolerate a bisphosphonate. There, there's some other reason that whether it's renal, whatever the reason oh, yeah, is, yeah. you're stuck and you're, and you're saying, well, I'm stuck. 
I'm stuck because I don't know if any, if, if a serum would be sufficient. I'm stuck because I don't know if maybe hormone replacement therapy would, would be sufficient. I'm stuck because this is a clinical problem. It's it, that comes up not infrequently and there's no answer to it in the literature. So let's go get the answer. Now, whatever the answer is, it doesn't, it's going to be extremely important, I think, to clinicians. And so that is a clinical project that I think is sort of assuming you can do it, you know, you stick to your goals, that it's going to be important no matter what. And that's, at least for me, that's been a definition of a good project, because you're really, it's, it's, in some ways, it's low risk, because, uh, you know, when you're doing a clinical study that takes years, and it takes all this recruitment effort, and then you're, you have no data to, to reinforce until the end, you really want to know that whatever the result is, it'll be interesting to you and to others. So yeah, you want to you want you want to get the answer. The answer is going to be valuable. The answer is going to take us another step forward, even if it's a no. I, I, yeah, I agree with you. So how do you how do you keep going during those years of you know recruitment, collecting data, and bone? It takes so long. How do you keep uh, how do you keep things going? How do you keep other do you keep other projects going? Or, I mean, I guess the key is to have projects at different stages all the time. And that's easier said than done because you're relying on people wanting to fund different projects at different stages all the time. So the ability to get funding comes in waves and it comes in waves based on NIH funding. It comes in waves based on whether there's an interest from pharmaceutical companies in investigator initiated trials and how active that is. Um, but if you are, I mean, it's, I think it's one of the real challenges of doing clinical trials as a clinical researcher is that. That, you know, you need to have faith that in the end, the answer is going to be interesting, even when you're not getting any positive feedback over many months and you're just plugging away and you're recruiting and you're interacting with all the regulatory agencies that we have to interact with, none of which I don't think anyone would call fun, but it's, it's getting to the point where you see those results. So you have to delay that gratification for, for sometimes a long period of time. It's, yeah. it's I think, difficult things about doing clinical trials and clinical research. And I think it's really difficult now. It's more difficult now because the, the, the landscape has changed and it's just much harder to, to be able to figure out a way to be funded for pro projects that are smaller in scope that will give you answers more quickly that'll allow you then to sort of build a career. I think that's one of the real challenges now that maybe we're, it was a little bit easier 20 years ago for me than it is now. Mm -hmm. So what would you what would you say to the you know the the young person either in the middle of fellowship uh, or at the end of fellowship who really does want that career in clinical trials human human clinical trials what advice would you give? Well, yeah, I mean my advice would be to focus on projects that are doable in a reasonable time frame while at the same time trying to become involved in larger projects that maybe will have a, a major impact, but it's just difficult as a younger investigator to carve out sort of a pro prominent role. So, you know, you, you don't want to just be an investigator in your, your mentors, let's say, big research project and clinical, you know, five-year multi-center clinical study for which you may, it may be very important and the results may be very interesting, but in the end, that's a, a team effort in which you're a member of a team but you also need to make sure that there's an uh, that you're doing something in which you are the pr 
person that is primarily responsible for the success or failure of the project, and that will be clear to others. And those, I think as a younger investigator, those need to be limited in scope. You can't start a three-year clinical trial, you know, as the, and, and put all your eggs in that basket. It's just, I think, too difficult to do. So smaller studies like the one I described at the very beginning with Andrestine Dione, and, you know, which we did, I think, in, I can't remember, maybe 45 men over three months. You know, those are the kind of studies that you want to focus on. And if you're in a place where they have the resources to help you do that, because it's not so easy to get the resources immediately, that's pretty important too. You know, someone has to have faith in you. And that's probably the key um, to getting to getting started, to getting those first few steps. And then you can move to larger studies and, and other things that you want to do. Yeah. So how, how did you build your team? You, you mentioned, you know, being part of a team and, and really it takes a team to execute these things. But at the beginning, sounds like it pretty much has got to be sort of self-started. I mean, my team has always been very small. It's still very small. And uh, when I started, it was, you know, a team of one, essentially. You know, I, when I did my first um, R01 funded project was, you know, just me and a statistician who had the patience to listen to me and help me with my grant because <laughs> I statistics at the time. And I was on the phone recruiting patients. I was, you know, I was doing all of that stuff that, you know, till I finally got it, was able to hire a research assistant. And then once you get some momentum, there are people that want to come work with you. And, and that if you're successful at being able to train them and to, to provide some sort of successful environment, then that will become known to others. And we're lucky in that we have very good and really excellent clinical fellows coming through every year. And we have, you know, we have four new ones every year. So they're looking for projects all the time. And if you have interesting projects, they'll be drawn to that. I mean, part of it is just luck again. I mean, I've been very mm -hmm. fortunate. People that have come have been, you know, excellent. Joyce Sai, who, who um, is um, oh, yeah, sure. a colleague, came. And in a way, I think very similar to myself, not knowing exactly what the future, the ultimate academic future would be for her. Um, and it's just been a very productive collaboration. Um, and so there's a, there's luck involved and there's no control group. So you don't really know every decision that you make, whether or not it's the right one and just have to keep plugging along. Go back to that instinct, right? Kind of. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just one last, uh, last question to ask you, if we think about our listening audience, what, what is the key takeaway you'd like them to have today from, from this discussion about PTH, anabolic therapy, uh, a career in clinical research, clinical trials? What's the key takeaway you'd like to leave them with? Yeah, I, I think I would say that, first of all, if you're interested in clinical research, if that's what is motivating you and what you find most satisfying, and I think that a lot of people who, who do it find that it's you know, just a lot of fun. You know, you just have to have your eyes open. It, it's difficult now. Funding is difficult, but there are different ways of having a career in clinical research. There's not just the one sort of way that, that at least when I started, people thought of it is, you know, you trained, you started with a K grant, let's say you had to get an R01, then you had to keep getting R01s. That's sort of, that's the path that, that, people follow. And it comes really, I think, from a more of a basic science path. That's how it's done. Sure. You know, it's difficult to do that, but there are other ways to do it. And there's other careers, you know, you can do 
you can become involved in, in investigator initiated trials funded by industry. You can become and you can you can have a career in industry, which could be extremely interesting if you have the right project and you're interested in in uh, in having a major public health impact. I you know that's something that colleagues of mine that started in this have done, and I think they've found it very rewarding. I, I think if there's a takeaway, it's like there's a lot of ways to do what what we do. There's not just one way, and there's not just one place, and there's not just one model. And particularly as things have gotten more difficult, it's important to keep your eyes open to all different opportunities and to be open to those. And and I, and I, and at least for me, the most important thing for me has always been to stay active clinically because that's what gives you the I think the ideas that ultimately become successful. If you if you stop being clinically active or as clinically active as you want to be, then um, then I think you get a little bit too removed from it, and you start asking potentially you could ask questions that are maybe a little less interesting than you think they are. But if you stay sort of connected to your patients, that is less likely to happen. Well, that's, uh, that's, those are some really powerful pieces of advice. They resonate a lot with me in, uh, in what I've seen over the years with su- successful careers. And I really thank you for sharing those with everybody. And it's been great to have this conversation with you. It's been really uh, a wonderful uh, chance to get to know you better, um, as, as, as well as I know your work. And uh, just nice to get to know you and what, what's been driving you over the years. Thank you so much, Ben. You, it's been fun. Thanks a lot, Dolores. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform. And stay tuned for our next installment coming soon.